from the high-flying studios of Univest at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. It is time for another Monarch Helping episode of Chemical Free Horticultural Hijinks, You Bet Your Garden. The thousand-mile migration of monarch butterflies every year is amazing, but none of it could happen without milkweed. I'm Mike McGrath, and on today's show, we'll discuss the three best milkweeds for monarchs, one to avoid, and what to do when milkweed pests show up. Plus your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and engagingly erudite elucidation. So stay right where you are, cats and kittens, because it's all coming up faster than you planting a patch of milkweed. Right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, I think a great question of the week about monarch butterflies. Actually, it's mostly about the milkweeds you can grow uh, to attract their well, to attract the monarchs who lay the eggs, the eggs hatch into the caterpillars and they become the monarchs. We'll tell you about the three best milkweeds uh, for North American gardens. We'll tell you about one milkweed you should avoid. And we'll go into a little bit of detail about the two most common milkweed pests. Otherwise, it's just another phone call show, cats and kittens at 888-492-9444. Pamela, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hello. Hello, Pam. How are you? Good. And I'm calling from Ugly, Michigan. Ugly, Michigan? Yes. Tiny little village. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm making fun. I'm saying it's Ugly, Michigan. Um, oh. <laughs> which, which will get me in trouble up there, I'm sure. What's the name of your town? It's Ubly, U-B-L-Y. That's a weird one. Well, it's uh, named after an English town. Oh, okay. Well, that's even weirder. All right. <laughs> <laughs> what can we do for Pam in Ubly? Well, I... Um... Just have really been trying to attract monarch butterflies, and uh, I had um, you know sent some pictures to you, and uh, I uh, really enjoyed doing micro macro photography and got some pretty good shots. And, and I, uh, so I, far, be- I believe we put these up on our Facebook page already, did we? Yes. Okay, yes. great. Because I would urge people to go there. Um, you did an excellent job um, capturing these creatures, and I believe they're all on Tithonia, right? Mexican sunflower? Yes. yes. Yes, I planted some last year and just left it over the winter, and it self-seeded and came back up again in force. And uh, this year I actually had one monarch that appeared. 
Only one? Bees. Well, I think it's one, unless there were more than one, and they just took their turn. Well, uh, but I, from what I understand from our friend uh, Ron, it's spelled Rochelle, but I think it's Reich or something, in Pottstown, PA, they don't feed for long. Um, an individual will come in, maybe be at a flower for a minute or two, and then fly off. But because the migration um, down to Mexico is is happening to all of them at once, so to speak, you could see one, and maybe if you had sat out there the whole time with a clicker, you could have gotten 40. Oh, that's possible. I know it was one at a time, but you know, then they'd stay there for probably 20 minutes and then be off. What led you to plant Tithonia? Well, you did. <laughs> I listened to your program all the time, and I've been doing it for years, and I managed to get a hold of some and uh, have hopes of planting more. We also have a farm property about five miles from our t- town home, and uh, milkweed just naturally comes up there, and I've got a patch I've been ignoring, so it keeps self-seeding, and I've got to get some Tithonia out there, too. Well, um, it's funny, because I just finished writing a question of the week about milkweeds, but you got to be careful with milkweed in farm fields. Um, as you know, it's attractive to the monarch caterpillar um, because the caterpillar is immune to what is otherwise a very toxic plant. And by feeding on it, it absorbs essentially the poison um, from the milkweed. Uh, but it's very dangerous for horses, uh, uh, any kind of livestock, dogs who will eat anything. And one of the hidden dangers, and maybe I realize this, but I need to be reminded of things about every 15 minutes. Um, it's really dangerous when the field is cut for hay and some milkweed gets in there. Uh, because it keeps its toxic property, and it can be really dangerous uh, for farm animals over the winter. Well, the only farm animals we have are chickens and turkeys, and uh, the milkweed patch that I'm dealing with is in front of the barn in the lawn area. Um, I'm sure there's some out in the fields or on the ditch edges, but um, yeah, the stuff that I'm working at, um, propagating his just in the lawn area. So okay, but and our ch- chickens kind of ignore it. Yeah, well, um, most of the research, you know, essentially said that uh, most creatures ha- are instinctive enough that they know that this is not for eating, and then because these, I, I believe it's an alkaloid toxin, um, they have a very bitter taste. So any creature that does take a bite probably won't take a second bite. But I just yeah. I just wanted to warn that um, you should move any milkweed that's in a field that's going to be cultivated for hay. Yes, we rent our um, fields to a farmer, so um, that's maybe something I can go out and do whenever he does. He, does, he, he rotates crops, so... Sometimes it's hay, sometimes it's corn. 
Well, the the danger yeah, the danger here would would be with the hay. There'd be no danger in it being around with corn. Uh, but that explains because you'll often see these things where farmers hate milkweed, and this really explained to me why. Uh, because if it gets caught up in hay, it's 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 impossible oh. to separate, so to speak. Yes, yes. And you know it spreads by underground rhizomes. So if you have a patch of milkweed and they're going to hay it, just dig up all those rhizomes and plant them someplace else. Well, I'll have to look out for that in the spring then. But uh, again, there's nothing better at the end of the season uh, than have Tithonia, the Mexican sunflower, in bloom. It is a monarch magnet. It is their favorite plant uh, because it has a lot of nectar and pollen, and it really pumps them up. Uh, can you even imagine how much gas you got to put in the tank to fly <laughs> uh, like yeah. a couple thousand miles and you're only yeah. a butterfly? I can't imagine how they can do it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and I've had probably a good 50 bees hanging out after the monarchs left. Oh, I think uh, Tithonia attracts pollinators, other butterflies. It's a remarkable but still underutilized plant. I encourage everybody to plan to grow it next year. And as you know, it's highly ornamental. Oh, I love it. I've got a tall marble statue in front of it, and that it's white marble, and that red that's um, around it is really nice. looks pretty. And it's really gotten tall. It's probably about six feet tall. Yeah, and again, yeah, oh, and it's so dramatic. I've grown it in raised beds where, like you say, it gets it gets very tall. I've grown it in containers where it stays nicely compact. And uh, and it reblooms so rapidly if you deadhead it. I mean, the flowers just keep on coming. Yeah. Yeah, I've been trying to encourage uh, family and friends to uh, start growing it, too. Yeah, the more and, the merrier. And unlike the cautions with milkweed, there's no downside to Tithonia. Just go crazy and try and help the monarchs get through uh, climate change, wildfires, floods, all these other, you know, it's like an old movie serial with them trying to get back to their uh, <laughs> nesting grounds. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, so thank you very much for sending the pictures. Um, I urge, again, all our listeners uh to go to the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page and scroll down. Maybe if we, uh, if I can pay attention long enough, we can uh, get them back up when this show airs as well. Because uh, I think it's a great advertisement for growing Tithonia as well. Yes. All right. Well, thank you for your time and thank you for thinking of the Flutterbys. Oh, yeah. very welcome. And I will continue to try to promote their. Um, keeping them going. All right. Very good. Um, take care. Uh, have a safe winter, and maybe we'll talk to you again next year. Okay. Thank you. 
Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that the annual Empty Bowl Dinner to benefit homeless families is back. And I'll once again be hosting the awesome event on Wednesday, November 15th at the William Penn Charter School on West Schoolhouse Lane in Philadelphia. Two seatings, 4.30 to 6 and 6 to 7.30. All the soup you can eat, a handmade bowl to take home, and me. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet, because we'll be right back to discuss the many ways of milkweed. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden. From the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, the best types of milkweed to grow for your baby monarchs, the one type to avoid, and what to do when two common milkweed pests show up. But in the meantime, more of your pestiferous phone calls at 888-492-9444. 888-492-9444. Susan, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you very much, Mike. I'm very happy that to be talking with you today. I'm very happy to be talking with you, Susan. Uh, where are is Susan talking from? Uh, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Okay, very good. I know where that is. And what can we do you for? Okay, um... This year, uh, I've had raised beds in the past that have gotten quite old, so the Bermuda grass has managed to creep up in them. So this year, I decided to build garden boxes on legs. And uh, I consider this first year an experiment, but I want to know how to proceed over the winter and prepare for spring planting. I, um, I remember an email that showed me pictures of, quote, homemade garden beds on legs. Did you use um, Trex or some other composite material? Yeah, I used Trex and, uh, for, one of, for the really big one. And then for the other one, I, had, um, I used plastic PVC uh, fence boards, two-by-six fence, hollow fence boards. And, uh, you know, I used what I had around. And you did these by yourself? I did. I I know my way around power tools. Yeah, you're very handy. These are (laughs) are professional-looking beds. We'll have to uh, 
dig out those pictures and put them up on the Facebook page when this um, yeah. call yeah. runs. Yeah, that one this that that one this all treks must weigh three hundred pounds. It will never move. <laughs> I found that out the hard way. I had um, I had my handyman build me two potting benches um, for the backyard out of treks. And neither he nor I had any idea how monstrously heavy they would be. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. Um, I like raised beds on legs. I have several. Um, what are your concerns or questions? Okay. Uh, I, uh, I filled them with a mixture of organic garden soil that I got from Home Depot uh, worm castings from my worms and my homemade compost, and I added peat moss, vermiculite, and then I had also picked up a um, a yard of uh, lawn and garden soil from my local from a local uh, place that's forty percent topsoil, ten percent sand, and fifty percent premium screen top so- uh, compost. Supposedly, mm-hmm. to me, it looked like it had a lot more sand in it. But huh. anyway, uh, I, I had planted pak choy, lettuce, and Swiss chard and green beans, and they were doing nothing for a couple of months. And I finally resorted to using Miracle Grow, and then they. I I know, I I waited two months, and I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> okay, so in the future, if you think feeding is necessary there's no reason to use those concentrated high explosives um you can go to an independent garden center i always urge people not to buy plants or gardening supplies at one of the big box stores um independent garden centers will sell you exactly the right thing they'll hold your hand they're part of the community the big box stores arrive to put these long-term family businesses out of business and your organic garden soil does not exist there is no there is no such terminology so Mm -hmm. i'm not quite sure how they bamboozled Mm -hmm. you with that one um well it smells it smells pretty organic (laughs) oh dear (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but anyway. Yeah, that that is worrisome. Now, and again, when you buy bulk, as you did from um, wherever you got your combination of topsoil, uh-huh. sand, yeah. and compost. Yeah. I always urge people before they have it delivered to bring home, you know, like a five-gallon bucket or even less of the material, put it, um, put some of it into a pot with drainage and some of it into another pot with drainage, plant peas, beans, or whatever freshest seeds you have in pot number one, and don't plant anything in pot number two, and then water them every couple of days, and after two weeks, If none of the seeds come up or if the sprouts look weak and spindly, it's contaminated with herbicides. If the other pot 
if the other pot stays empty, that's a good sign. Because if you start growing stuff in it, that means it was full of weed seeds. So this way you don't mm -hmm. have to worry about test results, paper, easy peasy to do it, citizen science at home. Okay. Uh, did you balance the peat moss with anything? Because peat moss is acidic. Um, well, uh, I mean... Just my worm castings and vermiculite and no you know. no. Uh, um, yeah. Whenever you use peat moss, you need to add uh, wood ash or agricultural uh, lime uh, to okay, raise the pH. And okay, so lime or or what, wood ash what ash from said? a wood burning wood stove. Ash. Yeah. Okay. okay. I prefer wood, wood ash Got because it. it it takes it out of the waste stream. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And um, and what what? Uh, and I know, prefer like I prefer perlite to vermiculite. Okay. They say it doesn't happen yeah. anymore, uh, but vermiculite uh, mines are yeah. often contaminated yeah, I, with naturally occurring asbestos fibers. Right, right. And I think it was perlite, not vermiculite. Oh, okay, used... good. Good. Yeah, 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 yeah. So with the uh, the wood ash and peat moss, uh, you know, like 50-50 of No, no, two? no, no, no. Um, let's say you're using a five-gallon bucket of peat moss, milled peat moss, um, maybe a cup of wood ash or lime. Okay, okay, that gives me a reference. Good, okay. And I, okay. I would really... <laughs> Um, you know, the, your beds are already filled, you know, your beds are made, you got to lay in them. So I would give them the, the bucket test, so to speak. I would take some of that soil and test it for weeds and test it to see, um, you know, what effect it has on fresh seeds. Um, the fact that they were growing, very slowly um, leads me to believe there's probably some grass clippings mixed into the compost making and treated grass clippings are death to plants. Okay. And how do you make your own compost? What do you put in it? Well, um, shredded leaves, um, you know, kitchen waste. Um, my husband did he he cuts the grass, and sometimes he rakes the grass up, and he threw a lot of grass in there this summer. And I haven't used, you know, that hasn't gone through the whole process yet. Mm -hmm. So there was some grass in there. Does he spray for weeds on the lawn? No. Okay. Well, uh, uh, if you're going to use grass clippings, which is foolish because the lawn would like to keep them, um, you really got to mix those up a lot. You got to keep, you know, there's compost aerator tools, little handheld tools right. that really mix it up. Um, the more you mix that, the more um, it'll help it compost. Mm -hmm. And I, I, it sounds to me like you need coffee grounds in that compost pile. Yeah, well, you know, the coffee grounds from mornings, coffee always goes in there. But I, a couple of years ago, I did pick up five-gallon buckets from, you know, one of the the coffee shops, I should start doing that again. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. 
if you and now did the rest of the season mm-hmm. go okay? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, you know, it finally started growing. Now the other question I had was uh you know with with raised beds every time it rains your your nutrients don't wash out of the soil. But with these re- these boxes on legs you know, the water's running right through and out the bottom. And I'm wondering if I'm losing nutrients that way. And if so, yeah, what do I do? But you also lose nutrients in regular raised beds. Um, they get washed deeper into the subsoil. Or they get washed away. If you want to be mm-hmm. really clever, um, set up a system underneath where you can capture that water and then use that water as water during dry times and that'll return the nutrients and um you know the water will Mm. be right there where you need it yeah yeah okay what about what about overwintering these boxes Uh, in what sense well um i mean the soil is just sitting there do i need to amend it with anything should i put shredded leaves on it like I would, you know, on a raised bed or yes. cover them or Yes, the absolute shred- best thing best thing you can do is put down two inches of shredded leaves on top of the beds. Okay. 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 Yeah. All right, yeah. we gotta go. Okay. Thank you so much. I'll work on it. Okay. You take care. Good luck bye. and bye bye. Bye bye. Curtis, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, thank you. It's good to have you here, Curtis. Uh, How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And where is Curtis? Dayton, Ohio. Dayton. Okay. Very good. The birthplace of aviation. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All of a sudden, my brain is in Kitty Hawk now. Uh, (laughs) That's a good place to be. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful there. And, of course, they have... Their own claim to aviation and everything. All right. True. Very true. Uh, Let's see. You're in Dayton, Ohio. Your name is Curtis. What can we do you for? Okay. I'm interested in um, getting an answer to a question I have pertaining to purple velvet miniature crepe myrtle bush. I want to plant one beside my driveway entrance. Okay. And I would like to know what time of year would be best to to plant it. Um, well, how where are you going to get the the bush? Where are you going to get the material? Thank you, thank you, thank you for asking. I I want to um, buy it from Amazon. Okay. Um, uh, crepe myrtle for many years was considered a southern plant um okay pretty much as you uh as you drove to virginia along route 13 they would start to appear when you got to the eastern shore uh you never saw them in cooler climates than that but over the years their range has extended a bit the most important thing is do you know what usda zone you're in it's uh, six. And are you certain that specifically this exotic variety of crepe myrtle um, is good for zone six? 
Yes, my my neighbor down at the other end of the block has one growing next to his driveway down there. And, that's... and it's a beautiful, <clears throat> beautiful red, red, uh, crimson red. Okay, so that's what piqued your interest. Exactly. He's a friend of mine, yeah. And where did he get his, do you know? Uh, I don't know. That's a great question. I'll have to ask him about that. Before you buy plant material from Amazon, um, I would see if perhaps he bought it locally. And I would buy from the same place. Okay. You know, I I know Amazon is selling everything. I actually bought some pepper seeds uh, from my garden this year from someone um, who had a little shop on Amazon. But live plant material... Now we're getting a little dicey. I mean, are they certified disease-free? Are they inspected? Uh, You know, there's lots of laws about shipping plants uh, from state to state. And, you know, you never know what kind of quality you're going to get. So if at all possible, I would um, ask him where he got his and get it at exactly the same place. Now, okay. if they still have them, if they still sure. have one in stock, then you can plant it in the ground now. Um, okay. But this would also be a plant that could take a spring planting very well. Okay. So the, they don't right. have it in stock, but they're going to have it again next year. I would order it, wait to the spring. And then install it when nights are um, reliably in the 50s. And you know okay. it, it, it doesn't bloom until the end of the season. Right. So you, when it blooms, leave those blooms alone. And then the following spring, go out there when you see new green growth in your garden um, then, yes. then you can deadhead the flowers. How tall does this one get? This one gets about, it's about, it get about five feet tall. Okay. That's perfect. What you want to do every spring is prune it back just to the point where it gets back to that five feet. In other words, okay. you, you can keep it a five foot shrub, you know, let it grow a foot during the season but then take that foot off at the beginning of the season. This is very good. Crepe myrtles love to be treated this way. Uh, It's very protective for the plant, and you will encourage a lot more blooms. Okay. And remember when— All right, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, yeah, he's had very good success with his, um, and he does does, uh, a great job, apparently, of pruning it. Yeah, never in the fall. Never in the fall. Okay. Never in the fall. Wait till the spring, and that will encourage the plant uh, to produce the maximum number of blooms. Okay. Hey, and have him over for a beer when you're going to plant it. He'll help you. He'll show you how to do it. <laughs> okay. That's a great idea. Thank you. All right. That. Well, thank you. It's a great question. Nice to talk to you. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that the annual Empty Bowl Dinner is back. 
and I'll once again be hosting this awesome event. This year's dinner happens on Wednesday, November 15th at the William Penn Charter School on West Schoolhouse Lane in Philadelphia and benefits the Family Alliance of Philadelphia. There's two seatings, 4.30 to 6 and 6 to 7.30. You get all the soup you can eat, a handmade bowl to take home, and me. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet, because we'll be right back to discuss the many ways of milkweed. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. This is 91.3 FM, WLVR Bethlehem, WLVR.org. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I'm pretty sure I am your host, Mike McGrath, and we are in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a little bit, we will walk you through the wonderful world of milkweed, the best ones to plant, the one you shouldn't plant, and what to do if milkweed pests show up. And that's coming up right after a couple more of your fabulous phone calls at 888-492-9444. Ed, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, my name is Ed. Hi, Ed. My name is Mike. Hi, Mike. <laughs> Where is Ed? In West Goshen. West Goshen? Outside, yeah. just outside of Philadelphia. Yes, it is. That's right. Okay. What can we do you for? Well, I'm having problems with the uh, these flies. I look like I'm not flies. They're birds. They keep landing on the ground, and they and they dig holes in my lawn, and they have a bunch of holes out there. And then now they haven't ripped ripped it out. You know, they're after these worms so bad that uh, I don't know what to do to get rid of them. You know. Okay, why do you say they're after worms? Well, because uh, uh, I can't see why would they would be digging in grass. You know, there must be something that, uh, a reward underneath, you know? Well, typically when birds have this kind of behavior, uh, they're digging not so much for worms, uh, but for Japanese beetle grubs and cicada larvae. Oh, really? Okay, so, I didn't know that. Did you have a lot of Japanese beetles this past season? Not really, no. Okay. Did you, you know, know they didn't start it didn't start they didn't start till like about three weeks ago. And every time I get up in the morning there'd be about fifty birds out in the backyard and they're all pecking away at the ground. Yeah, well and then, I, then I was I, I then I was chasing them all the time. And I guess they maybe found another piece of ground that you uh, go after. Well, um I would think the Japanese beetle grubs 
would have um, would be lower in the soil at this time of year. But we've also had a lot of abnormally warm weather. Some birds right. with especially long bills are very adapted exactly. um, yeah. to this kind of behavior. And right. uh, beetle grubs have a lot of protein in them. So oh, what, I'm, what I'm going to suggest is you buy yourself, especially before the freezing weather starts, a motion-activated sprinkler. And, oh, okay. And set it up and face it towards the area where the birds are. So when the birds mm-hmm. land, the sprinkler will go off and chase them away. Right. And then in the spring, um, you may want to write this down. It's, it's not a very common thing. Um, but you want to purchase beneficial nematodes. Um, you can buy them from Gardens Alive. You can buy them from independent garden centers. You can buy them online. These are microscopic mm-hmm. creatures that you water into the lawn, and they parasitize the beetle grubs. So no mm. Japanese beetles emerge. And, right. you know, this may be a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And uh, that's the first. That's the first time I've ever seen any birds do act like this. You know. Well, you know, time for everything. What uh, do you know? What kind of grass you have? No, I but I got all kind of grass growing out there. You know. Well, then it doesn't matter, right? So, um, if if you want, if we get rid of the birds quickly. You can try overseeding any spots that they left bare. It's a little bit right. it's mm-hmm. a little bit late in the season, but if you don't do it now, you got to wait till like September. Right. Okay. All right, man. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Well, good luck to you, sir. Okay. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Bye bye. All right, as promised, it is time for the question of the week, which we're calling Milkweed and Their Foes. Christine in Montgomery County, PA, which is near Philadelphia, writes, I've converted my garden to a chemical-free, pollinator and bird-friendly area. I now have mostly native plants surrounding my back patio and pathway and have seen an uptick of birds and insects alike. However, I'm concerned about my swamp milkweed. It grew beautifully this summer, and I was excited to find three monarch caterpillars on it. Then I saw that it was covered with yellow aphids. I also found ladybugs and milkweed bugs. Now I'm seeing tiny reddish beetle-like bugs scurrying around. I didn't remove any of these critters out of fear that I'd be upsetting the natural environment. But I'm also wondering if I somehow attracted the wrong type of insects and that they may invade the rest of my garden. Any suggestions or wisdom? Suggestions I got bags of. But I think I left wisdom in my other cape. 
At any rate, yours is a perfect question, as it appears your plant was invaded by the two most important milkweed pests. Lucky you. But before we get to those pests, let's briefly discuss the best milkweeds to grow as host plants for monarch caterpillars. Swamp milkweed, scientific name Incarnata, is a North American native that prefers growing in wet soil, making it a perfect plant for soggy spots. The website Monarch Health notes that the sucrose content of the flowers is about 30%, which sounds good for pollinators, but stay tuned for the real heavyweight champ. Swamp milkweed is a perennial, spreading via underground rhizomes, as opposed to those extremely rare above-ground rhizomes. As the website notes, this means that a big patch could actually be a single plant with a giant root system. Flower colors range from pink to a light purple with mild fragrance. Another native, common milkweed, prefers well-drained soils and also spreads via underground rhizomes, again meaning that a big patch could just be a single plant. It is said to be strongly fragrant, the better to attract monarchs flying back from their winter vacation, and its sucrose content is rated at an astonishing 100%, making it the most nutritious of the 100 or so native varieties of the species. Flower color is pink to white. Despite its common name, butterfly weed, known scientifically as tuberosa, is another native milkweed. It produces showy orange flowers that attract lots of pollinators and butterflies, while its leaves feed the caterpillar form of the monarch. It completes the soil trifecta by preferring to grow in dry areas. That's a milkweed for every garden. Important note, because it spreads via those underground rhizomes, milkweed can become aggressively invasive. If you want other plants to prosper, it would be a good idea to surround your milkweed patch with an underground rhizome barrier that will limit lateral growth. Now, a warning about the non-native tropical milkweed which the Xerces Society hopes you will not grow in a typical American or Canadian garden, despite its showy flowers, as it can confuse and disorient monarchs. Leave it in Central America, where it belongs. Now, always be aware that milkweed is toxic. That's why monarch caterpillars, who are immune to the poison, feed on it absorbing the toxins to deter predators. Don't grow milkweed if your dog eats everything and never grow it near a farm field where it can be extremely dangerous to livestock, especially when inadvertently harvested with hay at the end of the season. Now back to Christy. Remember Christy and her abundant late season visitors. Quoting the excellent Missouri Botanic Garden, the large milkweed bug is orange, red, and black. It has a long proboscis 
and is a piercing, sucking insect. It feeds on the seeds, leaves, and stems of milkweed, which many sources note may be a good thing as it slows down the spread of the plant by seed. This pest is not generally considered to be a big problem, but if they bug you, they are true bugs, you can spray them off the plant with sharp streams of water as soon as they appear. Then clean up underneath the plants after your first hard frost and trash the debris you collect to prevent them from overwintering in the area. Mulch afterwards with an inch of compost to show the plants you love them. Those little red bugs are probably the nymphal stage of the big bug. Spray these with professionally made insecticidal soap to smother them and prevent their molting into the adult stage, which is how they overwinter. Those yellow aphids are a species known as the oleander aphid a pest of many ornamentals. It's best to keep their numbers low early on as they can multiply rapidly, and a large enough invasion of these sap suckers could weaken the plant and deter egg-laying by adult monarchs. Again, sharp streams of water will blast them off the plants. Just make sure you don't blast any monarch eggs or caterpillars at the same time. Oh, and the ladybugs, of course, are there to devour the aphids. Important note, I found a lot of ridiculous and counterproductive oleander aphid advice on the Internet. More than half of what I read was dead wrong, useless, worse than useless, and or could prove deadly to plants and caterpillars. All you need to dispatch aphids is a hose with a nozzle that has a laser-sharp setting and good water pressure. Well, that sure was an interesting look at milkweed, now wasn't it? Luckily for yous, you can read those thoughtful thoughts over at your leisure or your leisure because the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. Just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and yes, you will always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to make mischief with my milkweed if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 888-492-9444 or send us your email, your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. And always, always, always please include your location. You won't find your location, but you will find all of our contact information Plus, answers to your garden questions, audio of this show, audio and video of previous shows, and links to our internationally renowned podcast. It's all at that website, youbetyourgarden.org. You Bet Your Garden is an hour-long public radio show and podcast produced and delivered to you every week from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. 
Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created when he read the first issue of the Fantastic Four while inhaling fumes from the linoleum his parents were buying at a flooring store on Frankfurt Avenue. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Joni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey. Our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work and ponder lots of pretty pictures at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Our peerless princess of profound production is Teresa Radke. Our audio editor is the always lovely Jonas Bowen. Our mascots are Zach the Taquisneski and Ducky the Dancing Duck. Our beloved and beleaguered CEO is Tim Fallon. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and I'll be waving a seasonal bye-bye to my monarchs until I can see you again next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.